0: Scott Sohey podcast. Um, In this podcast I spoke to writer, poet and musician Andrew Gregg Um, and I have to say it was one of the most enjoyable chats um, we've had in some time. Andrew spoke initially about Clean By Rain, his spoken word and music um, CD that he's made with the musician Brian Michie, and he talks a little bit about the ideas behind that, about how the collaboration worked. It's quite unusual, actually, and um, how Brian's music and his words um, just seem to to fit together um, almost organically, um, and you'll hear more about that in a minute. And he also talks about his um, poetry and his um, a prose as well particularly one of my favourite novels of his uh, which is Fair Helen um, based on a border ballad um, 16th century historical novel it's a terrific read Um, we also get a little bit of music related to that which is a real treat and um, behind all of this is this fantastic story which unfolds about how Andrew had originally started wanting to make music and with friends of his. And he, as years have gone by and people have been lost and then reconnected, he is um, going to be able to do just that. It's a, it's a lovely story. Um, anyway, enough for me. Uh, I will um, see you on the other side of this. Hello everyone and welcome to another Scott's Way podcast and today I'm joined by um, writer and musician Andrew Gregg. Hello Andrew. Hey. (laughs) Now I said musician that way because we're going to talk initially about Clean by Rain, your uh, spoken word and music CD which is, uh, is out now. I am. It's my first one. I'm very excited about it. Well... You have obviously do the spoken word on it, and the music is done by Brian Miki. Yes, that's correct. Would you describe yourself now as a musician, to add to writer uh, and poet? Well, I've
1: always been a frustrated, or failed musician. Basically, I'm a writer because I'm, I didn't quite have the ability and the absolute determination to make a living from music. That's where I wanted to be when I was fifteen to twenty. Yeah, sure, that was it. Um, I was so turned on by, by the music of the time which was extraordinary but in particular Dylan, Dylan and the string band and because the string band were from Edinburgh that made a huge difference because I was an answer there, and I thought mm-hmm. you could be cutting edge and Scottish I, I think it was like what the novelists of 10 years after me it was what Jim Kelman's Lanark did for them you could be Scottish and cutting edge mm-hmm. because at age 17 I was pretty embarrassed about being Scottish it was a fact But it wasn't something I was that keen on. I was much more interested in being Californian or from Liverpool or, you know, was part of that international thing of what was happening. And Scottish mostly seemed like the White Heather Club to me.
0: I was exactly the same. You can't kind of cringe off the culture. There was a bit
1: of a cringe, yeah. And then when I I heard the incredible string band, I thought, this is absolutely amazing. It wasn't just me. You know, Mm -hmm. obviously a lot of my heroes thought this was the business too. And I think that's what really kind of gave us permission we thought we could do that, possibly not as well, but we could write songs and and we can do stuff in a fairly chaotic manner. And that was, once I got the guitar, that was my principal interest. And the the poetry really became, was started off as a sideline. Right. There were kind of songs and there were lyrics for songs that either never made it or never got finished or just weren't good enough. And that's what I did. I wrote about it in this book, you know, the... um, the book with Mike Herron, uh, you, you know what you could be. Mm-hmm. That process um, whereby you you're all aspiration, unlimited ability, and very very little experience, but your you, your desire is so strong. Yeah. Um, to to become this thing and find this world that you know you you know it's not the one that you're surrounded by, but it's just like next door. Yeah. And if you try hard enough, you believe you can actually get there. So what happened was that I started writing poems almost on the side, as well as we were recording songs on our terrible two-track Grundy tape recorder. And we got in touch with a string band, met them, started sending the tapes to Joe Boyd. That was our thing for a long time. We made tapes of four albums, right? Um, with with the photos and miniature little cutouts and everything like that. My friend George Boyter, who was the other half of Fate and Ferret, he was had a real arty ability, and so we used to make up these. We made the world's first triple album before George Harrison. <laughs> right. And it's beautiful. It's like about four inches by four inches. Yes. Yeah. And some of the title tracks were a bit um, notional. You know, they were just titles or the first few lines that we had. Some of them were recorded. Anyway, what I do remember had a big effect on me was in my last year at school, I was sending out poems to places, Scotsman in particular, I wanted to have a poem in the Weekend Scotsman, because I'd seen poems in the Weekend Scotsman, in particular Norman McKiggs and um, Ian Crichton Smith, and Robert Nye, who's the poet, editor, eventually accepted one, and I got, I think it was £2 for that, encouraged by this, I sent some more poems to George Bruce at BBC Radio, they paid me five guineas, Mm. guineas I thought was great, (laughs) really classy
0: guineas,
1: (laughs) and it was quite a bit of money in, what, 1969. Mm. Right and I just started to see the light that hang on I'd been knocking on the door of this music thing for two years or so Mm -hmm. and though Joe Boyd was very sweet and and kind of encouraging it was so manifestly obvious we were a long long way from making an album and George was going off to art college we couldn't really go on the road and we couldn't move to London but the BBC were prepared to pay me five guineas for poems Mm -hmm. so I gradually got the message Yeah, but a lot of this, this CD um the first ideas for that, I think, came way early in my first year at the university. I had, There was a thing called Poetry Roadshow Right. That I was in with my friends, Ron Butler and Brian McCabe and Liz Lockhead. Mm-hmm. And I was playing some music and we had two better young musicians who were playing with us. And so we were doing this poetry and music. It was a lot in the air. The Liverpool scene were doing yeah. poetry and music, yeah. picking up of the jazz and poetry thing from the 50s. I don't think we ever got very good at it, but it really did... It gave me a yen to do more of it, because I could see that though I couldn't really sing, I could find a way of delivering the poems with music behind it. Sometimes just right. rhythm, just sometimes bass, sometimes um, mood music, all kinds of stuff. So th- I think it goes back to the poetry of wanting to do this thing. And more or less, over the f- next 40 years... Thirty-five of them, anyway. I really down graded music. Yeah. I mean, I love it. I love playing sure. guitar and playing, and lastly, the banjo. Um, it's a huge part of my life. It's far more fun than writing. Yeah, <laughs> it, just, it just is. The other good thing is, if you write a song, or take someone else's song, you can play it a hundred times. I don't sit and read my own poems at night for entertainment. Yes, that would of be <laughs> That would be bizarre, but I'm happy to sing my own songs or other people's songs hundred times, because they come out differently. Mm-hmm. There's an emotional dynamic, there's a physical dynamic about singing and playing. So what happened was I gradually, as I got old, somewhere in my 50s, acquired the brass neck to start very occasionally doing a song in public.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. um, I had an audience for, for the poetry in particular. And, you know, the doors were locked. and I thought, <laughs> well, people are too polite to, to leave. And I thought, okay, I'm just gonna try doing this. So I right. started doing a song or two or, or a moment, particularly once I got the banjo. And I discovered kind of I enjoyed it. It let me relax, it gave an audience a chance to relax. Because listening to poetry is it's hard work, it's very intense listening. And music songs are much more relaxed thing. It kinda of goes yeah, over sure. you and through you. Yeah. And so just my point of view of performance, it worked. And so gradually I realised, in fact, the last five years, let's say, if I do a reading, even of prose books, I tend to do it either with other musicians or just by myself. And music was becoming definitely part of what I did. I realised I had a repertoire. And in private, I would never do my own stuff. I'd always just, you know, I love mm-hmm. singing in sessions and, and an awful lot of songs. I'm not that good I'm a guitarist and not a great singer but I know an awful lot of songs I'm no guy that remembers the words yeah you know a lot of people launch off brilliantly and after two and a half verses nobody knows the words I know all the words for Desolation Row (laughs) and and these great long singers I know the Cohen songs I know all that core repertoire and Americana and stuff Mm -hmm. and increasingly sort of 40s and 50s jazzy things and blues things so point is that I was ready I think to Start thinking about making a, a CD, and I decided, in the first instance, not to do one of my own songs. So I'd, right. I'd I'd like to, and I think that's probably the next project. But what happened was because I was doing this book with Mike Heron the you know what you could be thing, and this was all about the the, the latter sixties in Wade Academy, Anstruther, and the mm-hmm. our band Fate and Ferret, the kind of string band light. But we had a guy, who was in the class below us at school, whose name is Brian Mickey. We called him Eric Plectrum just because of Eric Clapton, <laughs> and he was an electric guitarist, and he was really good. And he was real rock and roll. Yeah. I mean, he was hard case. He drank. He smoked. Um, he, people, he, he led the life. He led the life. He had, the, he, had a, he looked great in Levi's and he had a leather waistcoat, and he was just instinctively, naturally, rock and roll. Yeah. In the way that we were a couple of scuffy kids, and it just wasn't. We, we didn't have that attitude. Yeah. And he did anyway. Brian was a was a real pal. And he played on quite a lot of the tracks on the albums that never got made. And we lost sight of each other the mm-hmm. way you do after mm-hmm. he left school and we left school. And because of the book, I found him after 45, 48 years. Because no one knew if he was even you know, alive. Mm-hmm. You know, he got gone to Glasgow and disappeared. He couldn't have been anywhere. Given his rock and roll lifestyle, <laughs> we feared he could well be dead. And then, due to the miracle of Facebook, Mm-hmm. which his daughter had put, put him on just a few weeks earlier because he doesn't do that stuff, he yeah. can't do it he, he, it's just not his thing, he's a little technophobe but his daughter persuaded him that she wanted to put up at least a website with a name in it and we found him there and I, I emailed him and said, are you, are you the <laughs> Eric Kletcher and Brian Mickey <laughs> and yeah and, and so we met and it was, it was wonderful very emotional fantastic. and it turned out that he had had the life more or less that he wanted He'd worked uh, with the Citizens Theatre quite a lot, from everything from ca- being a carpenter to p- doing backing music to providing soundtracks mm-hmm. and playing in a band called Savar, right? Which is where the Savard Studios. Studios, was, right. right. was an old mate of Brian Young's, right? Which is where this CD was, mm-hmm. was engineered. Um, so, so these are all about these connections. The way the kind yeah. of life kind of catches up with you. You catch up with it. it Brian and I were chatting, and it turns out he had about two hundred <laughs> short instrumental pieces, mostly done on a, a keyboard, mm-hmm. um, about eight years ago, I think. Um, but he was playing everything himself, with a bit of live um, guitar and bass put over it, and they're all about between two and a half and four minutes long. Right. And he said, "Have you ever thought about having combining something like that with the poems? Because he knew he Moran." Right. And we thought, okay, we'll give that a try. And I think that is what's odd about this Mm -hmm. CD. Because usually, if you put poetry and music together, either the music is written to go with the poems, or the poems are written to go with the music. In this case, the poems already existed, and the music already existed. So these were two givens. Right. So what we did was we listened to, not all the 200, that's an awful lot of music, (laughs) maybe 50. And out of that, we got a short list of about 15, 20. Pieces and I thought that I thought these could work with poems, and we read separately through the dozen or so poems I'd selected down to I wanted to, to try that. And you worked from my poetry readings. And the weird thing was, we, with only one exception, we we had drawn up the same list of pairings. Right. That bit of music is going to go with the poem called Orkney. That one is Shetland. The one called Scotland is definitely
0: that. It was really surprising. It's really interesting to hear that because. Having listened to the CD a few times now, I would never have said that these weren't completely collaborated together from the beginning because the music really fits not just the the, 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 the rhyme or the, the, the rhythm of the words but the sentiment behind it you know the the, realism, tone, the, the, yeah, tone, yeah, the tone exactly
1: yeah. uh, it was quite surprising because I thought we might have had completely different ideas but there must have been something instinctively right about it mm-hmm. so and I think of it as felting because Usually, see the, mu- the music's a background for the for the poems or it's a, it's a it's a mood setting, but in this case it isn't and I didn't want it to be so I didn't want either to crowd the other out mm-hmm. so I wanted you to be able to hear and follow the music all the time even once the voice comes in rather than fading it down which is an instinctive thing to do mm-hmm. to move into the background um, so it's more like a song in that sense that the the vocals and the music are kind of on equal terms with each other. And so when we went into the Savar studios to do this with Brian Young, he really got that and because he's used to recording bands yeah, and music, yeah, that's what he does course, yeah. he's really good at it. So that was that idea I think and that we both we all three of us agreed on and that's what makes it unusual as a poetry and music thing because, see the, the the vocal, the words, the verbals I call them, mm-hmm. aren't put right in the front They're in yeah. with everything else, and it never I hope makes the music disappear no, no not it's at all. just 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 to be there um, and some of it uh, Brian suggested was a little bit inert um, just because it came from a different musical period. This was done on analog mm-hmm. a very good analog machine, everything has to be transferred to digital. Um, and Brian's a really good musician. Both the both Brian's are very really good musicians. So anyway, they said we need something live on top of this. Okay. So we got this chap, Alan Toll, um, in who's an old mucker of both Brian's. And bizarrely, I had met Alan Toll one night um in Drury Lane Arts Lab in 1969. <laughs> right. After George and I, as Faith and fair, had gone to hear um the extended version of uh, Magical Mystery Tour Right. and we were just ha- thinking where are we going to sleep tonight and this guy with really, really, really long hair, very, very thin comes up and says, hey man, are you, are you, you you're Scottish? and we said, yes we are he said, I'm from Glasgow, name's Alan J. Toll you got any a crash, man? and he said, no man <laughs> <laughs> so he put me, and he was staying temporarily in, in, in London in a flat somewhere And we we slept on the floor, and I'd always remembered him, and I'd written about him. Right. Um, That act of kindness. There was nothing in the flat, apart from I remember, apart from guitar, and porridge oats and um, Tate and Lyle golden syrup. (laughs) That was it. There wasn't even milk. Yeah. (laughs) So he gave us everything he had. He made us porridge with golden syrup in it, and then we slept. And the next morning we had more porridge and golden syrup. And as we were about to head off back for the fish lorry back to Scotland, he said, I'm going back to Glasgow. If you ever want to look me up, I'm the only Alan J. Tall in the Glasgow phone book. Right. And it's not a name you forget. No, it it's the not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <without> the <laughs> Jay- Alan Tall, I could have forgotten. But about 30-something years later, I mentioning a story to my friend George. And he said, oh, yeah, I remember him. Wasn't that lovely? I wonder if we can get hold of him. So I eventually got round I went on the net and Googled and I found an Alan Toll without the J's. I wasn't sure if it was mm-hmm. him in, in, um, on the net. And this guy was a musician and actor. That's he's, what he'd done all his life. But I couldn't recognise him because the man, the photograph, he's got like virtually no hair. Yeah, sure. You know, He's 50-odd he's years older. But there was one photo in his photo library of this skinny hippie playing sitar in a back in a back garden with a very bad colour photograph and it had all been warped with time. Yeah. I thought, that's him. That's <laughs> definitely him. So I, I had an email to him, so I emailed him and said, you probably won't remember me, but um, you once put us up for a night when we were completely scunnered in, in London. And he got back. I mean, life is amazing. He said, I've never forgotten you guys, but mm-hmm. I didn't know what your names were. Mm-hmm. All I knew was you were Fate and Ferret and you were from Pitt and Ween. Yeah, he said, I didn't know you were Andrew Gregg. He said I've been reading your books for years. I had no idea that was you.
0: Incredible, isn't it? Quite <laughs> I, incredible. And it
1: was so sweet. So we, this is we had to get him on the on the CD. Mm-hmm. So Alan plays flute, sort of played live over the mixed recording on three of the tracks, and he really lifts it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love his flute plays very good. Guitarist too, but there's a flute playing it
0: was refreshed. I agree. The flute uh, is, yes. is, is when I was listening to it before I came through again today. That was what really hit me as being. It just enlivens it. It, it mm. just brings a kind of, you say, a freshness to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when Brian had all this music, had he mm. had he plans to do anything with it, or was it just in a form storing up? I think he never felt he was much good at lyrics. Mm-hmm.
1: I think he had a notion that because the the structured like songs. If you listen closely, there's mostly a first verse verse in effect. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it's done again, but a bit differently. And then there's a middle section and then it returns to the nearly all structure, right. which is the classic way of yeah. structuring mm-hmm. songs as opposed to being kind of abstract um, musical pieces. Mm-hmm. So I think in the back of his mind, he must have been looking for somebody to write the words for but to be sung.
0: But what's interesting is your lyrics don't, aren't really like songs. They no. are spoken. No, no. no, so... the. I had I noticed that the music was structured that way. I'll have to listen again to see that. But because the lyrics aren't structured that way, for want of a better word, yeah. um, that's that's a really interesting way of doing it. You know, it, like the music's it, trying to go in one way, and that's then
1: that's it. That's it exactly. Um, because they are going, they're not marching in step. Yeah. I mean, I do write songs, and I write songs fairly conventionally: A A B B or A B A B, them being far out. Mm-hmm. And I do have you know two verses, middle section, chorus, whatever. For some reason, I'm fairly conventional when I write songs, but these poems, um, they don't have regular meters, they don't have regular rhymes, so they cannot be sung. Yeah. Really. They'd be very, very hard to make that work as sung things, so they don't have the the clear patterning. I mean, they've got a lot of tone and rhythms, and internal rhyme and off rhyme and stuff, but I mean, I always think that a poem is like a song that happens to not have a tune. Mm hmm. But the difference in some ways is even greater than that, that it yeah. doesn't have the same structural That's devices. Right. That's right. Even someone like Dylan, um, take like a Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. It's an utterly revolutionary song, but it's per- really quite conventional Absolutely. It has verses, mm-hmm. all of which are the same length, mm-hmm. which rhyme in fairly conventional ways. I mean, there's multiple rhymes, which he's, he was really good at, but it's recognisably a song.
0: Yeah. Well, it's like you were saying about... Um, with poetry it's you have to um, pay attention you have to concentrate um, whereas with music it kind of it, it's a different relationship with music you know it's a more um, a two way kind of relationship in a way and you let it um, um, come to you and I'm thinking about you are saying you knew all the lyrics but with something like, like a Rolling Stone there will be people who just know the chorus yes. and they'll be kind of going and then they'll like, go <laughs> how hey, is it and yeah and that's when they'll remember what it is yes. because that's they've listened to it perhaps not as you know they haven't maybe read through the liner notes hmm. and put the lyrics to memory but they still love the song yes. because of that but as with um, the Lyrics on Clean by grain and poetry in general. To get what's being said, you really have to concentrate on on it, and you know to get the meanings behind it.
1: I think that's why it's harder work listening, uh, in a way. A listener has to really get the words um, because because they're not being sung, I suppose, and so you tend to have a denser um, verbal component as yeah. well. Yeah. I mean, so what we actually did was once we'd agreed on which pieces we're going to use musically, they were that I did my homework and then went into the studio and basically put, they put the piece on the on the headphones. And I'd already worked out where I was going to come in and drop out. Because you could have quite long pauses. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like right through. The, um, as you know, there's quite pauses between 10 seconds and 30, or even a minute, once or twice, where the music just does its thing. Yeah, yeah. And so I was kind of... So it's live, in a sense it's a live recording, Mm -hmm. but something that's already been written beforehand with music that cannot be changed. It couldn't be changed apart from refreshing it with the flutes. So it was a really odd, and rather exciting experience.
0: Well, when I first uh, listened to it, it felt like it had been recorded live perhaps, like it was a performance, Mm -hmm. the whole thing was a performance piece because you say the music's given the space to breathe as well and and, and, and build an atmosphere Mm -hmm. and then the lyrics kind of add to that atmosphere. Um, talk, let's talk a little bit about the the, the words themselves. what I thought it, it was like a, almost like a travelogue or stroke comment on the nation as um, you know someone was traveling around different parts of the country. It's probably movements. a bit simplistic movements. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So was that what you were trying to get over? What, what was the reason behind?
1: No, I think it, it was just that was just, the thematic things just emerged. Right. Uh, I just chose because I, I liked them and then the poems and the, the ones I'd already already read quite a lot when I was doing live readings. Mm-hmm. And so I basically just took a handful of them, the ones that went with the music that was on offer. And like, I think this is what often happens, the sort of thematic unity, if there is one, <laughs> of diversity, mm-hmm. um, emerges by some kind of unconscious process. So by halfway through, we were aware that you know, there's a track called Orkney, yeah. Because there's a poem called Orkney. A track called Shetland, The one I'm um, certainly called Scotland. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, there's a lot sort of movement. There's a lot of um, the geography of uh, our country. Yeah. In it. Um, yeah. And Scotland has always been the, the principal subject, I suppose, of my novels and poetry. You know, so it's not it's not so surprising that that is that is in it. Um,
0: but there's also individual stories being told in these places.
1: Yes, and there's love stories, of course, and relationship stories and stories of events and, and, and people. I'd have to look at the sun of the tracks just <laughs> to see what's actually on this, just to remind myself. Yeah, Noid Art Revisited, I'd forgotten that one. I used to do a lot of Munroes, because mm-hmm. um, I used to do proper mountaineering in the Himalayas and stuff like that. And then when I got past it, frankly, and um, I just confined myself to doing Scottish Hills. And so this, I had this poem kicking around, Noida, Revisited, which is, uh, it's a love story, but it's also about the hills in Noida. And was, when I was doing that one, I thought, you know, there's something that I'm addressing here, and I don't quite know what it is, but here, all these tracks are about this, are about there's different variations mm-hmm. or versions of the same things, about feeling alive, in particular places, in a yeah. particular country that I
0: know pretty well. And I think that's, again, where the music works really well with them because the music has, um, I do not use the term ambient, but there is. A, 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 um, it, it's, it's not confined it stretches it changes mm. but it always seems to be part of the a whole thing you know and I think the, the lyrics work like that as well well yes they work as individual tracks and I think you can do that but the whole thing just feels complete it's spacey actually. it is there's, spacey there's yeah. a lot of
1: space in Brian's yeah. music so it really suits the outdoor poems mm-hmm. like Orkney yep. Shetland with a little bit of subtle echo mm-hmm. and <laughs> that Brian Young added and It kind of brings that out. So there is a kind of breathing space quality that that I really like. And there's a couple of um, quite heavy tracks, the one called Hoof that I already had, which was about rock and roll overload in Anstruther Town Hall in 1965, (laughs) which Brian knew really well as well. He knew those violent beat concerts that we used to go to. And luckily he had a couple of uh, heavier tracks. Because as far as I remember, there's no drums in this thing. I mean, that's what's... I think you're right. It's very rhythmic. But but that no track in particular
0: in is heavy, and it's, it's got it's the heavy. guitar, and it's got the... But, a, yeah, it's, it's not still not a conventional rock and it's, roll It's thing. not rock
1: and roll, because there is, there's about three different basses, but they're all done on keyboard. Mm-hmm. And um, above all, there's not drums. Um, there's an electric guitar, which is great. And essentially, it's Crossroads.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, yeah. Brian would admit that. Um, that's what's lurking in. Behind yeah, it. yeah, that, <laughs> yeah <it is. laughs> that's what it is, and um, it, it, it disintegrates into chaos at the end, which is exactly what my poem did. I thought we've really got to do this well yeah. and together, and that's was when I got one of the biggest kicks out of. So, but that in a way is untypical because that feels like um, in a, something that happens in a, in a compressed space, mm-hmm. in a compressed town hall inside inside your head, whereas a lot of the other ones are pretty out
0: and outside... Um, I just took it as a hills. different aspect of the country. So you've got the, the, the outdoors aspect and the the um, epic aspect, but then you've also got the little, you know, things yeah. which are going in town halls or in, you know, church halls or, yes. you know, where there's this kind of internal uh, drama going oh, on. Yes,
1: and, 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 and bedrooms, let's be frank. Yeah. I was just thinking that... Because um, it starts... And we always knew this was going to be the first track poem which I already had, called A Man Is Driving. Mm-hmm. And we recorded it first because I was confident about it. And I knew it. and it just starts, you know, a man is driving along a road that ends, sure as fate and chance conspire in a precipice. That's life. And I, I remember with the headphones on, seeing that with along with Brian's music, and I thought, this it's fun, this is, this can work. Yeah, absolutely, it's a great opening. And it, it establishes that sense of movement. Managed, uh, absolutely. That's the first thing that comes in, a man is driving, along a road that ends, it's always about mortality in London mm-hmm. um, and Scotland. And I think when it came to track ordering, having realised that that was an opening track, we did think of it because in the old days of LPs, t- sequencing, ordering was really, really of important. Of course, yeah. And we had a lot of fun and um, trying to work out the best kind of order to make it some kind of a journey mm-hmm.
0: through it. And it feels like an album. That's what i mean, like an yes, old album, if you like. You know, like a, you could turn it over halfway through and, and continue the journey on the B-side.
1: That's right. And of course it ends with a short track called Signing, uh, signing Off. Mm-hmm. That's me off then. You should not be surprised. Departure <laughs> has long been my nature and theme. And that's the kind of little kind of jokes that people used to do with LPs. You know, the first track... The last track on the first side, the first track on the second side, and the very last track—these were all really crucial. Mm-hmm. You knew they were going to be something you needed to pay attention yeah. to. And then I thought, oh, I, I want to put a bonus track in because um, I love this—the the implied generosity of the phrase "bonus track." <laughs> so that was two bonus tracks, and I, I got me a, it gave me a chance to do something live. From the, I did a gig in the Queen's Hall about a couple of years earlier, which had really, really good sound quality. Mm-hmm. The sound engineer there is terrific. And they gave me permission to use it. So one is an actual song. It's, one, it's the only time I actually allow myself to sing. But I'm with two proper musicians. This collaborative thing, I think, is important, as well as Brian and Alan Toll. They had Fiona Hunter and uh, Mike Vass, a wonderful player. Mm-hmm. But they're both really <laughs> fine musicians. They're proper musicians. They're not really... But they lift you up and they coddle you, and they're going <laughs> kind to of carry you in a net. Um, so I did a, a song of mine about my dear friend Mal Duff, who died in the Himalayas. He, he was the guy that got me into the Himalayan climbing. Mm-hmm. And then we, had, we did a, a, a thing called Found at Sea, which is um, a kind of sailing micro-epic, again... Very, it's in Scapa Flow, it's very specific, it's very Scottish, and it's got movement. And I knew that's where I wanted to end the thing, with this micro-epic sea voyage. Um, and they played in, in a more conventional way in behind it. The music there is entirely to add mood mm-hmm. and to and add dynamics and move it along. It's not actually made specifically to be listened to in the way that Brian's was. Right. So the way these bonus tracks a very different partly because they're, they're live and they got that acoustic you get with live music and also the the relationship of music to verbals it is more what you'd expect it to be which is alright yeah. but it kind of rounded off the journey as well as being a kind yeah. of PS Yes, absolutely uh-huh. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, So when you're writing, uh, say, a collection of poetry do you think about that in a similar way that you have? You're putting together a collection which is a whole and not just individual poems. Or yeah, yeah, very much.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think again that's because of this background in music, in LPs. I'd always thought of um, a poetry collection not as just a bunch of poems. I was always really interested in ordering them, mm-hmm. and sequencing and, and picking ones that sat with each other.
0: Yeah,
1: and so you'd get change, contrast, development. And quite a lot about three or four more books of poetry, things like Men and Ice and Western Swing and Found at Sea, they're all narratives. There's a real and implied narrative movement through it. Mm-hmm. The ones that are not narratives have, still have the kind of emotional fluxes and um, changes of place and changes of imagery. So, yes, I'd always, always thought of them as something that is partly to be enjoyed and taken in as a, as a whole. It's not how they're written. Yeah. And this mm-hmm. I was writing something which I knew was a narrative narrative poem in many parts. It's more a matter of doing it and then seeing the patterns that emerge mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and basically the best order of presenting them. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um and, and the patterns tend to emerge as you're writing um at a time or can you say, Oh, I wrote something, you know, a few years ago which would be perfect now to fit in with these? I mean, how does that
1: well, as a, as a rule, what happens is that I've got the po- the poems, well, you know, it's a poem a collection's worth, let's yeah. say, um, and sometimes I just literally lay them out on the floor mm-hmm. and just you just look and scan and, and feel the ones that live with each other and one mm-hmm. or two that, but actually, really, I'll keep that for another collection. That just doesn't fit here. Yeah. It won't work. Um, and you always try to get the first one and the last one and then the odd big thing that you can put somewhere in the middle, you know, and see the shape of it. I mean, very occasionally in when you're writing a long poem in many parts, let's say, like found let's sea, you do occasionally have to write something because it's necessary to write something that's going to go in there and do this thing. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, yeah, you've got a, a central so theme. Yeah, sometimes you have to fill in the blanks. Yes. Um, and, that, and that's quite a conscious thing. But as a rule, what happens with, with me at least is that, one poem will set off another one which sets off another in a kind of sprouting kind of progress mm-hmm. um, which I'm never really in control of but I'm very so happy it, when it happens.
0: It sounds quite similar to how you would maybe write an album. I think it probably is. You know, is. that's the, yeah.
1: I think it just, it just kind of grows and every so often there's one of poem which will just get lost and forgotten and then you might come across it a few years later and think, oh, I could use that now. I could stick that. In this, this collection I'm doing now.
0: Um, you spoke how writing songs is different to when you write poetry. Um, mm. because you, you said you're more structured, maybe not more structure, but you've got you're more conventional in the music than the poetry. How then is the change between writing in those ways to then writing fiction? Oh, well, writing prose. Mm-hmm, writing prose. Uh,
1: all, all in all, is um, basically. I never had any ambition to be a prose writer or, or a novelist. It wasn't one of my notions. Mm-hmm. It wasn't how I saw myself, if I saw myself at all. It was really a wannabe musician who gradually they got published as a poem. Somebody eventually as a bookie of poetry. And then he said, anything, well, I guess that's what I do. And <laughs> actually, it was better than having a job, so mm-hmm. I, I stuck with it. But for about 10 years, that's all I did was publish poetry, which meant I was properly poor and dependent on the Scottish Arts Council and you know doing bar jobs and mm-hmm. stuff, and signing on because those days you, 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 they didn't hassle you that much mm-hmm. when you were signing on and what happened was I got into prose genuinely by accident because I was offered by mistake a chance to go <laughs> on his Himalayan climbing expedition the Moostag Tower mm-hmm. in the Karakoram with with Malda because he'd read Men Are Nice which is one of my long narrative poems mm-hmm. about apparently about four people tend to climb in some kind of mountain. Basically, it was about getting high, because it was the 70s. <laughs> um, but the, the the imagery wasn't, wasn't mountaineering, because yeah. it was very interesting. Dougal Haston and um, Borrington and Doug Scott climbing, trying to put up a new roost on Everest at the time. But I'd never climbed anything. So Mal said, hey, do you want to come to Woodstock Tower wow. And he seemed like I could do what I'd written about. He knew the book. Yeah. And so it was one of those actions. He'd read the book. he read the... Rev- it had really good reviews in the climbing press. And he didn't get that is essentially metaphorical. He really <laughs> thought that... And too, not, no, I can imagine, we're but we cut at a pub in South Queensferry. And so I said, yeah, sure, man, you know, why not? And then we shook hands and wheeled off separate directions into the night. And then he walked into my door about a week later and said, Sarah, if you want to. And I said, what? Well, Mustache Tower, man. Um, talk to our sponsor, Rocky Moss was his name. American millionaire called Rocky Moss. I Fantastic. Think it's and Rocky really wants you to go, but... Um, the thing is you have to write a book about it and I said look I can't climb and I'm scared of heights, genuinely I've always been scared of heights, I love, I love hills um, he said oh right in that case well you're not going to the top, it's a very serious hill, it's 20, 24,000 feet and it's only been climbed once it's pretty impregnable but all you have to do is go to the call at 21,000 feet and I'll train you up starting now <laughs> and we've got six months
0: do wow. so you want to do it?
1: And uh, you said you got a week to make up your mind, so I obviously I I did do it in the end um, after hesitation because you know I'm not I'm not at, sure? at all a brave person and I'd say I don't like ice. so we trained in in Glencoe mostly um, but some in the Cairngorms through one long winter anyway the point is that, that I wrote a book about it and I discovered I really like writing prose mm-hmm. um, because. You can do it every day and it satisfies a kind of latent work ethic. I must have. Um, poetry just is there or it's not there, and for months you feel fraudulent, you're not writing anything. And you can try and write in that mood, and it's awful, it's horrible, it's right. embarrassing. Whereas to some extent, prose is manufactured.
0: Yeah.
1: And there's a different idea. You're trying to, you know, what, to some extent what the story is, mm-hmm. particularly if it's a non fiction book. And you're trying to put those pictures and stories in the head of the reader. It's more transactional, and it's more instrumental.
0: Right.
1: I think it's about my friend Ron Buckland says quite. I think it's quite good that pr- prose is about communication. Poetry is about communion.
0: Oh, that's we're putting it I in. think
1: poetry says, and soul are essentially shamanistic. Mm-hmm. I in saying in the words or singing in the words, I alter my state of consciousness, which hopefully this is what shamanism is alters your state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I'm write, when I'm writing prose, I'm very aware that I'm not even with that person who's going to be reading it. Yeah. They're sitting by themselves reading it, and I want them to get it. Yeah, well, I think but that's it's not right. shamanistic.
0: It's One um is open to um. Newmanists are almost endless interpretations, depending on how the person wishes to do it. Whereas you're informing the reader and prose, you're saying this is what I want to know. yes, this one, yeah,
1: what? yeah. You're selecting the story, mm-hmm. um, and people will still feel react differently to of it. Of course, but it's it is much less subjective, and and much more from a playwright's point of view instrumental. You think oh, I'm I'm going to make them laugh here, or this will be. Oh, I think I can. I need to kind of take a break here. Um, so that 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 can slow down or that can sink in. I never think about the reader when I'm writing a poem. Mm-hmm. Writing a poem is like trying to tune a whole piano or ten pianos to itself. <laughs> You're trying to tune the words to themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in am writing prose, I'm partly having a good time myself, but above all, I'm very aware that someone is going to read this. Right. And that shapes. It's like talking with you. I mean, we have a conversation. It's a one-sided conversation? I admit, but you know what I mean. That yes. It's not like me humming to myself. Yeah. I'm actually saying this to a purpose. Yeah. So anyway, that that nonfiction book I discovered. I liked the work ethic. I like it the fact I got paid for it. Mm-hmm. My readership was about you know twenty times that of poetry, and I discovered I could actually make a living because enough people bought the book mm-hmm. to. For the publisher to pay me money. Yeah. And it's an enormous transaction. You want, you like the book? You give me money. Yeah. we we exchange. And that led to a second expedition on the ridge the of Everest. And um, by the time I'd written two whole prose books, I'd kinda of got in the habit of sitting on my ass, you know, five hours a day kind of thing. And discovered I liked it. Mm-hmm. So I was staying with my sisters in Italy. In Italy before Christmas, and found myself reading an old journal, well, a recent journal, and I, I'd noticed I'd slipped into the third person.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I thought, this quite... My life was really chaotic at the time. <laughs> and I thought, this is quite a good story. I'd never, ever thought of writing a novel before. Yeah. And then, But I thought, it's, it can't be that different. Mm-hmm. And i got into the habit, as I say, of writing prose. So that's what made me become a novelist, was writing this, in some ways, quite autobiographical um, first novel, and by that time you know I, I'd kind of got used to that okay I, I guess I'm a writer, and it means I'm not dependent on the Scottish Arts Council, <laughs> and I have a relationship with putative readers. Yeah, it's lovely. My father could read yeah. these books he said I, I don't understand this modern poetry son, but I knew he could read
0: those yeah. books um so what was the first novel? What's the name of it? That was Electric Bray. Electric Bray. Right. right. And that is the, the kind of more, most autobiographical one yeah. that you've done. Yes. Um, it's my life with bells on. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the one, um, the novel which I know best and absolutely love is Fair Helen. Oh, that's nice. Great. And a, it's a historical... Yeah, that's novel. much further away from me, yes. It's
1: not
0: about me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's based on uh, a border ballad, um, mm-hmm. Fair Helen of Connell Lee. See, that comes direct from the song. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is interesting. The novel
1: wouldn't exist without the song. It's
0: set down in um, Annandale. And my uh, mother's side of the family are from there. And I was saying, oh, nice. I was reading this novel called Fair Helen, and immediately she came out with, oh, Fair Helen. Of Did she I knew know the it? song, she knew the song, yeah. I can sing a little bit of Archie Fisher's version of it, if you
1: want. Oh, that would be fantastic, yeah. yeah. Um, the best recording I've ever come across of it is, there's lots of different tunes to it. It's um, Archie Fisher's, so I finally met him, he was something of a hero of mine. And I met him in the course of doing that book.
0: Oh, fantastic.
1: Um, and he, the, the track had long disappeared, but he, he actually gave me one of his last copies of M- Man with a Rhyme I think it's called the album is called and on it is it's not the kind of thing I can sing very well but I quite often do this with Rachel Newton a wonderful folk musician singing it and she does it with a class sack and it's just heartbreaking oh, Again, I wear wear Helen me, she cries, and I am weary for the skies of oh, fair Kilcano. Say when Rachel does it, and then she would set that out, she'd maybe do two verses, and then just drop out to playing just the class I, And then I'd come in um, with the talking bit from, from the book. Mm-hmm. And that's really great fun too, because you've got the original song, 500 years old, which told a true story, and then you've got the novel version of it being read out over it. Yeah. But, but the novel version is set at that exact period. Um, and starts in Houghton Castle, and, and and the the narrator has got this song in his head because these songs were were published in broadsheet ballads forms. V- then very short time of the events happening, it's mm-hmm. been like the Wild West, yeah. uh, similarly mythologised even as it was happening. So the border rivers mythologised themselves while but, they were still at it.
0: What I was interested in is this, this is a period um, that. I only started to know when I studied Scottish literature mm-hmm. at university and you had you know, Hugh McDermott saying not Burns Dunbar and mm-hmm. all these stories that w- most people hadn't yet discovered. W- was that just because this period interested you or did you want to kind of, say there is more here that people should know about? What was the reason for the setting and the, the place?
1: I'd always been haunted by uh, ballad, the talk or probably did it at school, most Scots school kids did. We had a, a very good English teacher, always boils down to that, Gackle Alistair Mackey, was a very fine poet in, in Doric Scotch. Right. Very highly strong man who didn't like teaching. He was much too sensitive for it. But anyway, he really plugged the border ballads with us. He loved them, and he had the voice for it. And in particular, um, the, uh, the Tor Corbys, and we, I remember, doing it in, in English. And then my friend George and I, as and Ferret, did it at a Burn supper with um wild yowling and and violins, fiddle playing, mm-hmm. and uh two droning guitars tuned down in a really kind of very <laughs> vague and far out way and I, it always haunted me that thing, so what happened was about thirty years later, I wrote a novel um called, oh, what's it uh, skin somebody with skin in it when they lay bare mm-hmm. it's a it's a slight mis quotation from a line of the thing um, or here's white bains when they lie bare, the winds shall blow forever mere. Um, so the book was called When They Lay Bear, and it was haunted by the real incident and by that ballad the incident that lay behind it so it's largely set now mm-hmm. but, it, but it, because it's so um, affected by the past, there's somebody in it who may or may not be an avenging ghost or else it's just psychotic, it's very... Hard to say for a long time. I didn't know myself which she was. But she's certainly come with a mission. And the more I read into um, the Border Reavers, the more you know, fantastically interesting they were. Yeah. At that time, I was living in Peebles. Yeah, right, right. So, because like a lot of Scots, I don't really know the Borders. Mm-hmm. well. I, I know the Highlands pretty well. I know Central Scotland pretty well. The Borders was more or less a closed book to me. Yeah. But now I was living in it and thinking about it and reading about it and walking in it. It really started to, to get to me, and I thought, these... And the, also the English borders, because the borderlands were the borderlands. Yeah. And they didn't particularly think in terms of um, Scottish or English. Yeah. They were borderers. And Northumberland, um, the, where my, my grandparents were from, um, I, I knew it reasonably well. And I always thought it was a very beautiful landscape. Because it's very bare. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's much more bare than the Scottish borders, which yeah. are actually quite
0: fertile, They're quite lush, yeah. Uh, uh, it's kind no. of
1: odd. It's kind of you know, it's, it's not. You you automatically assume that the Scottish version is, is much harder and more austere, but it's not. No. It's the other way around. And I love the English side of the of the borders. So anyway, that's what led to me reading a lot about it and writing a book, which uses on um, the imagery and the um, the tropes fate superstition the supernatural stuff I don't believe in but my god it's powerful Yeah, absolutely. And, and murder and passion and revenge I mean it's all the stuff I don't believe in but my god it's in the bone you know it really is right in our Scottish bones
0: <laughs> I think that whole area we have talking about this just recently particularly since you build a motorway going up one side of it and then a motorway across the top of it, kind of got forgotten. And this the wonderful yes, history of it. Uh, sure. has, has, and it's still there. And it's in the buildings and the statues and, mm-hmm. and the songs. And, uh, you know, I, discovering the work of Hogg and uh, yes, the collect. It was just amazing.
1: The Late discovery for me. Stevenson writes somewhere that the great contribution of Scotland to world literature was the border balance. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he probably is right he was right about a lot of things so what happened was about three books later um, there was a friend of mine um, John Wallace who, who lives in um, Kirtlebridge, Kirtle um, which is right right next to Huckle Connell Lee and he wrote and said about. I was thinking about you the other day um, I think you might be interested in this ballad which I'd never heard of frankly mm-hmm. And that's where I live and it's where I'm born. And you might, why don't you come over and I'll show you the graves and I'll show you the the kirk and uh, I'll, I'll show you the woods where the shot was fired from. And I thought, okay, nothing better to do. So I went over to see him and we walked around the place for a couple of days and it just fascinated me because, like most of the border it's it's based essentially on an, an historical event. However... Mythified and distorted over periods of time, and you can look at those graves. You can stand in that rain, and then you get that sunshine. You shelter under bridges. The the burn is the is the same burn. Yeah, yeah. The crypt is the crypt, and all these family names. You can go to these peel towers, the ruined towers. Most of them are ruined, not all of them. And the same families are connected yeah. to them. I mean, Boris is like that. Yeah. And all three families, was was still there. And it was just uncanny. And I was driving home thinking, you know, it's often called the Scottish um, Romeo and Juliet. And I thought, well, I've kind of done my Romeo and Juliet books. (laughs) But I was thinking about, I'd been reading a book called Shakespeare, 1599, the year in the life of when he's just about to write Hamlet. And I was thinking I would always wanted to write a novel the point of view of a sidekick. Oh, yeah. Very fertile position, like Horatio, I was thinking Mm -hmm. idly. And then into my head it's jumped in his name, Harry Langton. And I thought, oh yes, Harry Langton is from Leith. His father's a cooper. He would have gone to Edinburgh University paid for by the Guild, which is how he could have met someone of the gentry, Adam Fleming. Mm -hmm. And that takes him into the the love triangle, which will end very badly. (laughs) And by the time I got home, you know, the whole thing kind of more or less shaped up in my head. And I knew Hawthorne Castle, Mm -hmm. because I'd been on a writing retreat there. And I thought, that's where it's set. Harry is writing this. 40 years later, um, in the very cold room, because I knew the cold rooms, in Hawthorndon Castle. And that's how the book opens. And I, I sat down and wrote this opening, and I had a voice in my head, and it wasn't my voice, it was a Scots voice, seasoned little bits of Latin and little bits of French, quite a lot of my father's, um,
0: Doric and little bits of Lallans. The, the language is incredibly rich. And it's got an index I in it. I love doing
1: it. it. I, the, there's a small index yeah. in the back. I mean, I usually try and use words in a context so you can make a, a good guess at mm-hmm. what it would have to mean, particularly for English readers. But not even Scots readers, some of those words would be familiar. Yeah. Other ones are not. Mm-hmm. And I just put them there because they just felt, seemed right. Mm-hmm. But also I'd put it in a context where you can understand it. Sure. And just in case, there's um, about two or three pages.
0: Index at the back. Yeah, it's, it's there's some fantastic words which, is, as you say, I'm, I heard my you know my grandparents maybe use or uh, yes. you know there's a real historical language there which comes uh, through which I think had got got lost I think particularly oh, from the borders.
1: Yes, particularly from the border stuff. Um, curious enough, the, the, the Doric seems to have survived mm-hmm. more than a lot of the. And my, see, my father, in affectionate mood, would use these wonderful words I remember you say I'm wabbit, I'm mere than wabbit I'm fair dis jeskit <laughs> I, I remember it was wa- mayor than wabbit dis Jeske. <laughs> for fucking was another one it sounds like swearing, it's not for fucking. completely fucked basically <laughs> 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 it's great uh, so I find myself, you know, hearing that that, that, that in, in Harry Langton's voice. And the great thing is the ballad gave you the bare bones of a story mm-hmm. and you just had to work out the rest. What was really going on here? What did happen? What's the story behind the story? And I found just by walk, going around back down there and walking the place and finding lonely inns and places to shelter and places to hide and uh, unexpected paths and a, a lost cave... That they just found themselves into the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and what I remember best was my friend John Wallace who was standing on top of a Peel Tower, um, which are these defensive and signalling towers that they had. And it was quite a clear day, but it was a bit misty. And he said, those hills in that mist there, those are English hills, and a trooper horseman could be there in an hour. Mm. And, you know, they could just raise this place like that. They can burn it, they can kill you, they can kidnap you, um, they can take all your cattle and sheep. These were these are what these people lived with. Yeah. And that's just over there. Yeah. Um what's one of what, it's gotta get around the Solway mosses and they're here. And similarly, the Scots mm-hmm. could be weather there in an hour. And I thought, Blimey, no one of these people were a bit edgy and a mm-hmm. bit paranoid and kept their armour and their swords, you know, by the by the door. Yeah because they could they could saddle up and be prepared to go to Reeve um, in about an hour, they reckon.
0: And the use, I suppose, of supernatural and ghost stories and anything that might stop, you know, people going into certain areas would probably Well, help. I hadn't thought of that. But they certainly bought into non-Christian ideas of,
1: of supernatural and mm-hmm. fate and the inevitable and, and, and ghosties. Yeah, ghosties, exactly. Vogels.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, so... You, I think you mentioned earlier on that you're going to be doing some more music Is Well, Is that the plan? Yes. I'm thinking of
1: doing a, a, a CD of these songs. I've got about 12 songs that I feel stand up over. I mean, I must have written, I don't know, 40 or 50 over the years. But most of them, they wouldn't stand up. But I would like to I would like to do about 10 to 12 Songs that there's some of which I keep, you know, play one or two in public. Sure. Um, one of them is on the, on the CD, the, the song for Mal, So I can't do that one again. But with pals that I have who are proper musicians, people like like Mike Vass and, and um, Fiona Hunter, um and, and Alan Toll is, is a wonderful musician. It'd be just so much fun, yeah. to bring those people together. And we've already got a project with my friend George Boyce from Phat Fet- Ferret, and Brian Mickey, and myself, and Johnny Miles, who was at school with us as well. To kind of do a, it's like a pre-fence collective. Yeah. That's what we were into uh-huh. Uh-huh. thirty years earlier, but we didn't have the technology yeah. that allowed us to record quality albums in our bedrooms. I mean, I, I love what the Fence Collective, um do. Very, mm-hmm. the, And it, it's because it chimes so much with what we were trying to do. We had our immediate circle, and we knew new friends, and we would drag people into, you know, uh, we need a flute for this. Who plays the flute in the school? Oh, Cathy plays the flute, right. Come on, Cathy, can you record this for this gig with us? And so it was a kind of wonderful return to kind of go back to um, the the pals that you made music with in 1968, 69. yeah. But doing some the songs we've written in interims, all of us kept writing and kept playing. Yeah. So I, I, so I think that's, that's two CDs I'd like to make. One of them is essentially my own stuff, um, performed with other people, and the other one would be this... Uh, I don't know what you call it, the East Nuke? Um, the pre-Fence Fence. Before, <laughs> before the Fence. Before the Fence existed. So... Dykes, <laughs> 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 something like that. So the, yeah, that, that's
0: that's what what's cool. It's a really uh, lovely story. Actually, the idea of you know the group of friends who desire was to make music, coming back through different connections all these years later, and, and making that music.
1: That's something so satisfying. that yes, circle. absolutely. Will the circle be unbroken? Yeah. Yeah. That's...
0: Well, Andrew, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been a real pleasure.
1: That's. <laughs> I've enjoyed his
0: havering. I hope I haven't havered too much. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. And um, we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Cheers. And that was our Andrew Gregg podcast. Um, just a fascinating man to listen to um, about music and poetry and all these things that he's interested to, the passion, the... the, the just is undeniable. Um, and I want to thank him again for giving up his time to talk to us. Uh, we'll be back soon, um, as I said, with something completely different. Genuinely don't know who it's going to be, but um, they'll have to go a fair bit to be uh, as entertaining as that. Uh, but we will see you then. Cheers. Cheers. <music>